Well, if you guys wanted to go ahead, you could actually be seated. I'm going to read my text here after I introduce this message here. But good afternoon again. I am beyond honored um, and extremely grateful for the opportunity of coming before you to deliver uh, this message. Uh, it is truly a humbling experience and one that I'm undeserving of to be used as an instrument of edification for the upbuilding of God's church. I don't take this lightly. I know that you don't take this lightly. And with the knowledge of how weak and needy I really am of God's help, I know that many of you have prayed for me, and I can't be more thankful for your partnership and preparation of the sermon. As we spend time, uh, this time together in worship, my hope is that we would equally share in the satisfaction that comes from knowing God and understanding His Word. The title of my message is The Sufficiency of the Cross in the Christian Life. And the text that I'll be preaching from is Galatians 2.20. and really needs no introduction from me, as I'm sure that many of you know this verse and love this verse. So if you would, please turn with me uh, in your Bibles to the second book of, uh, to the second chapter of the book of Galatians. And though the heart of my sermon will focus specifically on verse 20, for the sake of knowing the surrounding context, I wanted to begin reading at verse 15. But before I do, I wanted to make you aware, by way of reminder of what has transpired up to this particular point in Paul's epistle to the Galatians. The letter at hand comes from a heart that is greatly grieved and afflicted for the sorrowful state of affairs at the churches of Galatia. The authority of Paul's apostleship as well as the very heart of the gospel were being undermined and distorted by false teachers, namely the Judaizers. These false teachers taught that if the Gentiles wanted to become Christians, they must also maintain the Jewish rituals and obey the law, that they must surrender to the law's crushing demands over them. But this is the very thing that Christ came to save us from, that the gospel had set us free from. The Christians there were walking on a dangerous edge, and if he thought that things couldn't get worse, Peter one of, the, one of the leaders of our faith, as well as one of the original apostles of the Lord, was by his conduct in agreement with the false teachers and out of step with the gospel. And so the threat from Galatians 1.8 finds its home when Paul declares that even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. This just goes to show that no one outgrows their need for grace and that even true men of God can still lose sight of the gospel at times. My brothers and sisters, there's nothing more devastating to the souls of men or to the religion of Christianity than what Paul is addressing in this letter. In his commentary on Galatians, Luther said, if this error had been permitted to pass unchallenged, Christ would have lost out altogether. The pure doctrine of justification by faith, which is what was at stake at the time, is the anchor by which all Christian doctrine holds firm. And if it is lost, everything is lost. And you begin to make sense of why Paul opposed Peter to his face and why, why Paul fearfully rebuked another apostle of God in the midst of everyone, in the presence of all. The true gospel was at stake for a gospel that was no gospel at all. The gospel that saves was being substituted 
for a gospel that damns. The people of God were being divided and led astray. The merits of Christ's finished work for all who would believe was made insufficient. And the blood that God had spilt in purchasing his church was made void. And this is the result of adding anything to the already completed cross work of Christ. And so this is what Paul is currently combating, the devilish doctrine of justification by works rather than faith. And where we find ourselves in the given text. So let us now begin reading from verse 15. You can still be seated. I'm going to read it for you. This is Paul speaking, starting in verse 15, chapter 2 of Galatians. We are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Since by the works of the law no flesh will be justified. But if while seeking to be justified in Christ, we ourselves have been found sinners... Is Christ then a minister of sin? May it never be. For if I rebuild what I have once destroyed, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. And the significance of this passage we just read is is twofold. And then in verses 15 and 16, Paul tells us what the doctrine of justification is. And in the verses remaining, 17 through 21, he gives us a defense of it. In the first part, Paul explains the essence of the the doctrine of justification by faith, what it is, and then contrasts it with the false doctrine of justification by works. And in the second part, Paul exults in his new position of freedom from the law by declaring the life he has received from Christ and is now living by faith. So what made Paul different from the false teachers? What was his secret? He tells us in verse 19, He says, for through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have no doubt that the Judaizers believed that they were serving God, that they were living for God. But as long as they were alive to the law, they could not be alive to God. Indeed, in chapter 5 of the same book, Paul goes on to declare that anyone who seeks to be justified by the law has fallen from grace and is severed from Christ. For Paul, death to the law was the decisive factor and the necessary exploit if he was to live for God. He died to the law so that he could live to God. A life of freedom in Christ is the only way to live. And like the Judaizers, Paul understood that the law is good and glorious in respect to its God-given purpose and the scope of redemptive history. But unlike the Judaizers, He also knew, or at least came to know, that the law did not contain the ability to give one a right standing before God. For the last verse of the passage that we just read says, If righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. But this is exactly why Jesus Christ came and died in the point of Paul's argument. 
As fallen men, we cannot render by means of obeying the law what is necessary for salvation. The law frustrates man's schemes of achieving salvation in themselves and in their own strength. No one has ever succeeded in doing so. No one has ever received a justifying righteousness from the law. Indeed, the whole of mankind has sinned against God and broken his law. And because of that, all of their righteousness all of their righteousness is made void, and they are altogether incapable of pleasing him in any amount of good deeds. And for the unconverted sinner, for the one who is without Christ, every righteous deed is but a glorious sin. And when a sinner looks intently and soberly into the great law of God, his perceived righteousness is turned to rags, his personal decency to shame, his strength to weakness, and his hope to despair. The law beats us and makes whatever notions of goodness we once had of ourselves disappear. The law is to us only but a mirror that reflects the sinfulness of our persons and the corruption of our hearts. It shows us how utterly unable we are to fulfill the expectations and demands required by God's moral standard of holy perfection. The law of God does not help you overcome sin. It just makes it impossible and tells you that you will die if you do not fulfill it perfectly. Law is merciless to transgressors, and that's the reason why the law was put in. And in the end, it does not and cannot yield the necessary remedy of man's fallen condition. Paul did not find life through the law, and so he died to the law that he might live to God. Our main text this afternoon, Galatians 2.20 is essentially an exposition of what it means to live for God, or rather to God. Some have called this Paul's spiritual autobiography, and I know that for those of us who are in Christ, that's exactly what it is. And so let's hear from Paul's testimony once more. Paul says in verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith, and the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. And if I could give you maybe a name or a title to uh, this following section, I would, I would call it the significance of the cross in the Christian life. For he says, I have been crucified with Christ. Now from the outset, let me explain what this means and what this does not mean. Some have taught that this verse demonstrates the believer's responsibility to die daily to himself versus his justification in union with Christ. And they seek to do this by focusing on Paul's use of the pronoun I while at the same time attributing to Paul the work of his crucifixion and thereby make it a self-crucifixion. But nothing could really be further from the truth that is intended in this message Instead, this passage is talking about Paul's steadfast and unshakable position in Christ, not his sometimes faltering daily condition. A look at the syntax of the original Greek actually proves extremely revealing. In the Greek word Paul's describing, in this word for his already have been crucified, is a word, it's, uh, the word is sunistauromai, but the significance of this word is that it is written in the perfect tense, which means 
And this is key to understanding this text. It means that what Paul is talking about is emphasizing the completion of a past action, something that was finished in the past. But what is wonderful about this text is that that completed past action has now given birth to results that exist in the present time. And I know that's probably a mouthful, but we'll get through that here. It's profound, it's necessary to understand this text. One commentator puts it nicely. He says that this word brings to light not only or simply that at some time in the Paul, sometime in the past, Paul was crucified with Christ, so not merely the death of his old man, though Paul died. It says, but that he continued in the capacity of one crucified with Christ. So the old man is still dead, and Paul is still crucified in the present time. What happened in the past is still powerful in the present. And it is as Romans 6.6 6 explains that the old self has been crucified with him, that our old body of sin might be done away with. And therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. Galatians 2.20 is about our union with Christ and is not talking about an action taking place today or tomorrow for that matter. This passage is focused on the death of who you used to be, not the daily death of who you currently are. And that's very important to understand as we understand this text. So not only has Paul's old self died by virtue of the cross, but he is presently dead by virtue of the cross. Why? Because he was in Christ. He was united to Christ. Therefore, whatever happens to Christ happens to Paul. And wherever Christ goes, Paul goes. And whatever occurs to Christ takes place in Paul. A similar connection can be made with regard to the first Adam. In 1 Corinthians 15, 22, it says, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. This is expressing our union with both heads of different sides of creation. The old creation and the new creation. We can also say it like this, through Adam's transgression, Paul died. Through Adam's sin, I was condemned, and through Adam's disobedience, we were made sinners. And likewise, with regard to the second Adam, when Jesus was crucified, Paul was crucified. And when Jesus died, I died. And when Jesus was raised from the dead, I was raised from the dead. And when Jesus ascended into the heavens, he took those of us who are in him with him. You can find almost an identical parallel in Romans chapter 6, verses 2 through 8. And you can turn with me if you would, brethren, so that we could dwell on this meaty passage of Scripture together. And as we set this passage before us, I also want you to take notice of the author's use of the past tense. So you get an idea of what has already happened in Paul and is still true about Paul presently. Romans chapter 6, starting in verse 2. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus, this is our union with him, have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, 
so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. And that is the promise and the significance of the cross. And there's great assurance for you if you are alive in Christ in these passages by virtue of your union with Christ because it presupposes your death. Even greater assurance is the newness of life that you have received and are now walking in because it presupposes the resurrection of Christ. As he was raised, you were raised and are presently walking in that. And what does the fifth verse of this same chapter say? It says, For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. For what else but a resurrected and living Christ can be the source of life for a dead man? If you are in Christ, you have the greatest hope. Because of Christ, your old self was crucified with Christ. And since Christ redeemed you from the curse of the law, the penalty of your sin by becoming a curse for you, it is, as Romans 8.1 tells us, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And what a privilege it is to be dead to who you once were, and now alive to God through the cross of Christ Jesus. And that brings me to my next point, brethren, which is the significance of Christ in the Christian life. So not only does Paul unashamedly profess his co-crucifixion with Christ and his union with Christ, but he also confesses, it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Notice the pronouns that Paul uses in the section of this verse. He uses both I and me, one for his past life and one for his present life, and neither of them have any jurisdiction over Paul's current life. Paul's old life is altogether dead and gone, and Paul's new life is altogether consumed with Christ. The old Paul no longer lives. Paul died to Paul, and Christ by his spirit has completely taken over and taken up residence within him. And so while we've taken note of the fact that Paul's past life has ended and that Paul no longer lives, but what does that really mean? And where do we see this concept appear in the Bible once you take the time to search these things out, it is astonishing at how often they appear in virtually every, every book of the New Testament. And we can see, even just beginning with the Gospels, we could quote Luke 9, 23, speaking of this past life, where Jesus says, If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. And if you are listening closely or reading along, you notice that if anyone would follow Christ and be soundly saved, Jesus demands that that man or that woman lose and deny their life. And I love this verse because it allows us to look briefly at the old life before the cross in its active state 
before it was crucified with Christ. The old life was contemplating death. However, we also have multiple references to that life as a result of the cross or after the cross. We see it in Colossians 3.9 where we are commanded not to lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices. In Ephesians verse 22, Paul again mentioned this reality when he declared in reference to your former manner of life, you laid aside the old self. Paul was, well, Paul was well acquainted with the truth of which we are now speaking of. For he said, it is no longer I who live. Speaking of his old self, but Christ lives in me. And me being his flesh or his mortal existence. It is unmistakable then that there is a life to give up if one is to be gained. So what is this life that Paul no longer lives? And this life that Jesus commands us if we would live to lose. Well, before any of us had encountered the love and lordship of the living Christ, the entirety of who we were, as well as Paul, was characterized by our union with Adam and the reign of self. And we can say on a federal level, because of our position in Adam, when he sinned, we incurred the consequences of his rebellion. Through his sin, death entered into the world, and not only physical, but spiritual. The human race was altogether shut out and separated from God. It was because of Adam that our Bibles tell us that from birth we were dead in our trespasses and sins. And not only did we receive the condemnation of Adam's sin by virtue of his headship, but we were also reduced to the corruption of fallen flesh unfit to receive the things of the Spirit, unable to obey the righteous commands of God, and totally incapable of being an object of delight in God's sight. And finally, on a personal basis, in the same way that a tree bears fruit after its kind, so does the sinner bring forth odious fruit after its fallen nature. What did your life look like before you were saved? That was the product of Adam's fall, your depravity and love for sin. In my old self, my heart and life was submitted to my own will. I was not willing to commit myself to God. I was self-centered, self-seeking, and self-pleasing. I gave my affections to the things that brought me pleasure. I depended on my own strength to be good enough if it meant that I didn't have to bow my knee to Jesus Christ. I was empty, vile, miserable, and without God in the world. I was alive to sin and dead to God, but now by the grace of God I can say with Paul, it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And all of who and all of what Paul was has been completely put to death in Christ. My darkness has been turned to light because of the life of Christ in me. And my soul is now engaged with divine affections and swells with rich consolations that come from knowing God. And my dead heart is now beating because of the life of Christ in me. Because we are in Christ, we benefit from all that he is and all that he has done for us. And the saving promises of God in the plan of redemption are now being fulfilled in us by Christ. 
And this is only a summary of the exhaustive significance of Christ in your life. And after he ends this section of the verse, he then proceeds with the reason of why these things have come about in his life and how he is currently living, which brings me to my last point, which is the significance of faith in the believer's life. And altogether, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And look here at the manner of Paul's life. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me, or gave himself up for me. And when speaking of the manner in which Paul now lives, it is interesting to know how he describes it. It is the life which he now lives in the flesh, and that by faith. Remember, though Paul has participated spiritually in the death and resurrection of Christ, he still lives in the flesh. He has not ascended to some super spiritual world of perfection, but still lives in the body. And like the rest of us who are in Christ, Paul is still vulnerable to give in to sin. And likewise, we also want to safeguard Paul from what some have wrongly interpreted his existence in the flesh to mean. The words in the flesh, which in the Greek is in sarki, are words that describe his mortal existence, his life in the body, and are not to be confused as if to say that Paul was living in sin or by carnal means, as some have said. But what this verse is telling us is that though Paul was living in the flesh, he did not live by the flesh or in his own strength. No contrary to that, though he, was, though he lived in the flesh, he lived by faith. And this was the new beat of his heart and the lens by which he saw all things. Notice also that Paul wasn't just made alive by faith, but he was living by faith. In verse 16 of the same chapter, Paul said that a man is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. And that is how Paul's faith had begun. Now he says, I am living by faith, and that is how he is enduring. Faith in Paul's life is not just something he once did to be saved, but something he exercised and lives all the day of his life. In fact, we are sanctified by the same faith we are justified by, our justification being the basis of our sanctification. And it is as Philippians 1 verse 6 tells us that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. And in conclusion, I wanted to draw your attention to what Paul mentions at the end of this verse. He wraps up this verse by saying, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. And what's profound about this verse is how deeply personal and individualistic it is. He began the book of Galatians by saying in verse 4 of the first chapter that Christ gave himself for our sins. What's profound now is that Paul is emphasizing God's intimate love for him, specifically. Now he is stressing the special electing love of God for him by saying that Christ died for me, that Christ loved me and gave himself up for me. And yes, it is true that God so loved the world and died for the many, but he also died for me. To turn away from the finished work of Christ, only to return to the system of self-effort and the lie that 
somehow you can live up to the demands of God's law by your works would be to, to nullify and make void everything that Jesus had accomplished. And Paul said, I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. In conclusion, though the law is burdensome, Christ is gracious and altogether lovely. His rest is sweet indeed. The goal of the law is to press and condemn the sinner until by faith he surrenders to God and freely falls forever into the arms of Christ. He does not submit to the law for his righteousness or acceptance before God, but he looks by faith at the finished work of Christ and believes that Christ is enough. He looks to the grace and love of God shown in the cross for our salvation, which is scandalously unconditional, requiring nothing, yet promising all things. And what Paul wants us to understand is that only faith in Jesus Christ can offer what the guilty sinner needs. And truly, Christ is everything to the believer. And by faith, the weary and restless soul can lie down in God's green pastures of peace. And by faith, the naked and filthy are clothed in white garments of splendor purchased by Christ. Christ is able to save to the uttermost. And only free, free grace can remove the heavy burdens of our sin. The burdens of our sin and shame and cast them into the ocean of God's reconciling blood. And it is as Ephesians tells us that only by faith in Christ do we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses. So how are you living your life? Are you relying on Christ? Or are you trusting in yourself and in your good works? Because Christ has fully finished and stands ready to give everything necessary for salvation. But you must accept and receive his work and reject your own. And let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, you are so merciful to us. We're so undeserving. God, I thank you for your grace in giving me the opportunity to explain to the men and women that I love the most the great truths of your gospel in this passage. Lord, I pray that the Spirit of God would truly take these things and show them to our soul. And I pray, Lord, that with this sermon that we would respond in a necessary way, Lord, to lay all of our trophies at your feet and to live by faith, completely trusting in your finished work for us. Separate us from the world, O oh God, that we may fully live to you and renounce all of the confidence and trust that we would have in ourselves Lord, you are enough for us. Thank you for this word, and thank you for letting us come before you, Lord. I pray these things in your name. Amen.